I have a question for you this morning. Are you ready? How many of you are alive? Just raise your hand if you're alive. Okay, that's the majority of you. That's, that's a good place to start. All right, here's the follow-up question. How many of you are thankful to be alive this morning? You know, I, I'm very thankful to be alive. And we need to always remember this, that life is a precious, wonderful, sacred gift from God. Now, I brought something with me this morning that I used to use in my previous career as a, a firefighter and paramedic. It's a stethoscope, and I've always been fascinated by the sound of the human heart. How many of you have ever listened to your heart? Isn't that amazing? Now, here's what I want you to do this morning. You don't have a stethoscope, but take your, take your hand and put it here on your neck. Can you feel your pulse? I hope so. You should be able to, because if you're alive, your heart is what? Your heart is beating. And do this. Take a really deep breath. Ready? Take a deep breath, and then let it out slowly through your mouth, and feel your breath on your hand. Just do that. That's the breath of life. And that's a gift from God. You know, I remember when I was a, a firefighter and a paramedic being asked this question, why would you risk your life for other people, people you don't even, even know, people that are sleeping on the street? Why would you risk your life for them? And here's the, the answer. Because they matter to God. And because they matter to God, they matter to me. Today, around the country, churches are celebrating the sanctity of human life, the sacredness of human life. And back in January of 1984, former President Ronald Reagan issued a proclamation designating this day for that purpose. And he wrote this, the values and freedoms we cherish as Americans rest on our fundamental commitment to the sanctity of human life. The first of the unalienable rights affirmed by our Declaration of Independence is the right to life itself, a right the Declaration states has been given by our Creator to all human beings, whether young or old, weak or strong, healthy or handicapped. Now this is a very important, obviously a serious topic that we're looking at this morning and we could approach it in a number of different ways. For example, we could approach it from the standpoint of science. I could tell you this morning that a trained geneticist can look at the DNA of a human egg or a human sperm cell and distinguish that DNA from the DNA of a human embryo because something happens on the molecular genetic level in conception. I could also tell you that the same geneticist cannot distinguish between the DNA of a human embryo and an adult human being. Now we also could approach this issue from the standpoint of statistics. I could point out, for example, that the Endangered Species Act in our nation includes the protection of three amphibians, 56 birds, seven clams, two crustaceans, 29 fish, eight mammals, 21 reptiles, two snails, and 42 plants. But not an unborn human baby. I could tell you this morning that one in four babies conceived in America is killed by abortion. And since its legalization in 1973, 58 million babies have lost their lives to abortion. And right now in our nation, abortion is the number one cause of death. I could point out that despite its American heritage, the United States leads every other nation in the industrialized world in the percentage of single parent families, abortion rate, and teenage birth rate. 
I could also approach this from the standpoint of stories. Here's one, Goodyear Tire spent $35,000 to surgically attach fins on a pregnant loggerhead sea turtle that had been mauled by a shark. And a spokesman for the company said this, we're doing this for motherhood. I could tell you about Norma McCorvey, once famously known as Jane Roe. She asked the U.S. Supreme Court to overturn its landmark decision that legalized abortion in 1973. Norma, who became a Christian in 1995, said that she was used at that time by abortion rights attorneys in their quest to legalize the procedure. We could approach this topic from the standpoint of science or statistics or stories, but this morning I want to emphasize what the scripture says about the value of human life. And let me say this, I, I deeply hope that this message will present the truth of scripture. And I deeply hope that this message will present the grace of God. The Bible says that Jesus Christ came from the Father full of grace and full of truth. And here at our church, we want to be like Jesus. We want to speak the truth. We want to speak with conviction. But we also want to speak with great compassion because I know personally that this topic has affected so many lives and so many families. So, what does the Bible say about the value of human life? And here's the first thing. This is on your Bible study outline. You have been made in the image of God. You have been made in the image of God. Now, how many of you, when you go to the grocery store, read labels? Some of you probably really, really read labels. Any, anybody in that category? I mean, you check out every ingredient and the things that you buy. I have a a jar that I grabbed this morning from our pantry. Now, what do you think this is? You want to guess? What do you think that is? A jar of what? Now, see, if you said peanut butter, you would be wrong. How do I know that? Because the label right here says almond butter. Looks like peanut butter, but it's not. It's almond butter. The label says so. In fact, if you read the label, it tells you all kinds of stuff about this. This is peanut-free. It's kosher. It's uh, certified gluten-free. It's non-GMO. tells you what's inside when you look at the label, you get an idea of what's inside and its relative value. Now, do you realize this morning that every single one of you has a label on your body? You can't really see it with your eyes, but do you know what that label says? Made in the image of God. In the opening chapter of the Bible, God creates Adam and Eve, and it's as if he puts a label on them that says made in the image of God of God. Look at this verse from Genesis. It says, so God created people in his own image. God patterned them after himself, male and female. He created them. Now, the author of the book of Genesis is Moses, and Moses is writing to the people of Israel. Now, they lived in a world that was filled with images, so they really understood this idea that we were made in the image of God. And in that ancient world, kings often would install their images in different strategic locations. Here's an image of one of the pharaohs of Egypt. This is an image of Ramesses II. He's the pharaoh to whom Moses went with a message, let my people go. Now, these images were designed to display the king's power and authority, and the custom of that day allowed people in Moses' time to understand what it meant to be made in the image of God. Because you see, just as human kings had their images, God, the divine king, 
determined that the human race would bear his image. Simply put, the term image of God refers to the fact that human beings are representatives of God, the divine king of the universe. But being made in the image of God does not mean that we are little gods. That's what many of the Eastern religions teach, that we're gods, we're not. But being made in the image of God means that we share many of God's attributes. Like God, we have emotions. Like God, we have a rational mind. We have a moral conscience, we have creativity. That's what it means to be made in God's image. And the question is this, why did Moses want the Israelites to understand that they had been made in the image of God? And there are really two reasons. First of all, he wanted them to have a correct view of themselves. Now many of you know that the whole nation of Israel was enslaved in Egypt. And during that time, life was cheap. I mean, the people of Israel understood that in Egypt, the rich and the powerful were somebody, but they were not. And Moses writes to them to help them understand you are somebody. You have nobility and honor and dignity because you are made in God's image. Now, there's a second reason that Moses wanted the Israelites to understand they were made in the image of God, and it was simply this, so they would know how to treat other people. See, God understood that those who were formerly oppressed could easily become the oppressors. It would be easy for them to mistreat the weak and the vulnerable. And that's why when you read the Old Testament, you find these laws, these instructions about how God wants his people to treat widows and orphans and strangers. You find these laws where judges aren't supposed to show favoritism to the rich and the powerful. In fact, everybody, including the king, had to obey God's law. So everybody was to be treated with dignity and respect because all of them had been made in the image of God. And this biblical view of dignity, this idea that we're made in God's image, speaks to our contemporary culture in exactly the same two ways. You know, this morning we were singing a number of songs that pointed out how much God loves us. Remember that second song, Oh, How He Loves Me? God wants us to understand because we are made in his image, we have dignity and worth and value and that he loves us with an incredible love. God also wants us to understand that he loves other people in exactly the same way, that everybody is valuable in God's eyes. I read a story about a teacher who presented her students with the following dilemma. She said, what would you say to a mother who is pregnant with her fifth child based on these facts. Her husband has syphilis, she has tuberculosis, their first child was born blind, their second child died, their third child was born deaf, their fourth child has TB as well. The mother is considering an abortion, should she? Most of the students said that they would advise the mother to have an abortion, and then the teacher said, Congratulations, congratulations, you've just advised this mother to kill Ludwig von Beethoven. The Bible teaches that life is precious from conception to its very end. I can remember a number of years ago, my dad was in hospice care here in Palm Beach County. And the people who work in that setting have such remarkable respect. And you can just tell they value people, even though they're close to the end of their lives. And I remember them caring for my dad and I was thinking about this idea that human beings are made in the image of God and we have value from the time that we're conceived until the time that God brings us home out of this world. And that really is one of the core beliefs of Christianity. 
that all human beings have worth and value in God's eyes. And let me say this, in the abortion debate in our country, you often hear this statement, that a woman should have the right to choose whatever she wants to do with her body. But what exactly does that mean? Well, first of all, it's helpful to realize that a woman's rights to do what she wants with her body are not absolute, they are limited. You know, for example, prostitution is illegal. A woman does not have the legal right to take her own life. And so our laws limit what a woman can legally choose to do with her body. But I think there's even a more compelling perspective. It is simply this, that a baby is not a part of a woman's body. It is separate and distinct. It is another person. There's a passage in the Bible at Psalm 139. It was written by King David, and he talks about God forming him in his mother's womb. And he says this, God, you knit me together in my mother's womb. And it's really clear that King David sees himself as a person separate and distinct from his mother. And that's really important for us to understand. A baby is dependent on the body of its mother. We all know that. But it is not the mother. It is a separate person. Think about this. If a person kills a pregnant woman, they are charged with how many counts of homicide? Two. Because they've taken two lives. And yet our same legal system, and you saw the statistic on the video produced by First Care, a woman can choose abortion right up until the time that baby is born. Friends, our laws are so inconsistent and illogical. And, and friends, let me say this. The pro-life movement is not a war on women. It's an attempt to save little women and little men who can't speak up for themselves. We know that one of the core beliefs of Christianity is that all human beings, from conception to death, are valued by God and should be treated with dignity and respect. But there's a really significant problem, and, and here it is. Our view of ourselves and our view of other people has been distorted by sin. See, we are made in the image of God, but here's another reality, and this is on your outline. You have been marred by sin. It's true of every single human being. Now, remember the, the jar of almond butter? You know, if I took something and scratched up this label, you wouldn't know that that was almond butter, would you? You'd probably think it was peanut butter. When the label gets marred, it's hard to tell what's inside. It's hard to see the value of what's inside. And essentially, this is what's happened to every human being. We were made in the image of God, but that image has been marred by sin. Now, how did this happen? Well, the Bible tells us that Eve was deceived in the Garden of Eden by Satan. And what happened on that fateful day in the Garden of Eden is very similar to what happens when you watch a political ad on TV. How many of you have seen any political ads recently? They're all over television. Now think about this. What is the strategy of a political ad? Well, it's, it's really twofold. You want to promote your candidate and discredit the other candidate. Now, why criticize the other person? Well, because of this. Because unless the public sees a, sees a need for change, they're not going to vote for the other person. Unless they see that their situation is not good, they're not going to vote for change. And this really is how Satan tempted Eve. He discredited God and convinced Eve that her present, present situation was not good. Because think about this, if Eve really believed that she mattered to God, that God loved her completely, she would not have been tempted to disobey him. 
And so Satan tries to get Eve to doubt the goodness of God and how much she matters to him. Eve, if, if God really loved you, he wouldn't restrict your freedom by telling you what you can and cannot eat. If God really loved you, he wouldn't keep you in the dark when it comes to this issue of understanding good and evil. And today, Satan deceives us in exactly the same way. He tries to convince us that God is not good and that God doesn't really care about us. And friends, when we start going down that path, when we start believing that lie, we end up searching for, for something, for anything that'll make us feel special and important and loved. One of the primary reasons that so many unwed teenage girls become pregnant is because they're searching for somebody to, to make them feel special, to make them feel important, to make them feel loved. And the problem we have is not only that we're deceived about how much we matter to God, we're also deceived about how much other people matter to God. I was thinking about it this week that when you go to school, whether it's high school, middle school, elementary school, you quickly understand that not everybody has the same relative value. And it's because generally speaking, there are two groups of people. There are the winners and there are what? The losers. Now who are the winners? Well, those are the kids that are bright, athletic, talented. And who are the losers? Everybody who's not considered to be a winner. Just yesterday, I was sharing this with First Service. Yesterday, I was in the car with my wife, and I was trying to get into the turn lane, and there was this line of cars, and I had my blinker on, and nobody would let me in. And I got a little upset about that, and, uh, and I actually said something to my wife about the person right next to me who wouldn't let me in. And just when I said that to her, I was reminded of the story that I heard about this little boy who's in the car with his mom, and he had a question. He said, Mommy, um, why do the idiots only come out when Daddy's driving? <laughs> that reminded me of this Bible verse. I want you to take a look at it because it has to do with people being made in the image of God. It's from the book of James. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who have been made in the image of God. And so blessing and cursing come pouring out of the same mouth. Surely my brothers and sisters... This is not right. Why isn't it right? Because people are made in the image of God. Every single person, even that person that cuts you off in traffic, that person that won't let you merge, that person is made in the image of God and should be treated with dignity and respect. And this deception about how much people matter to God plays out in the opening chapters of Genesis. Remember Adam and Eve, they have two kids, two brothers. Do you know their names? Yeah, Cain and Abel. And Cain and Abel present a sacrifice to God and God accepts Abel's sacrifice, but he doesn't accept Cain's sacrifice. And so Cain gets enraged and what does he do to his brother? Yeah, he kills him. And this begins a downward spiral of violence. And it gets so bad that God is ready to really just pull the plug on this human experiment. And we read this in Genesis chapter six. It says, the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart, notice this, was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth and notice this statement. I think this is one of the most powerful statements in the entire Bible. His heart was filled with pain. Now you think about that. We can bring pain to the heart of God. We can bring joy to the heart of God. 
But why is God's heart filled with pain? It's really simple because the people that he made, the people that he loves are being dishonored and dis- devalued. And God takes that personally. You see, when you honor another person, you're really honoring God who created that person. When you dishonor another person, you're dishonoring the God who created them. And every day on this planet, people are dishonored, whether it's through abuse or neglect. Sometimes it's through racial prejudice, through sex trafficking, through abortion. And I know that that a number of you have experienced those things personally. And when you look at what's going on in the world, it can get pretty depressing. Because the world is really a mess. And you know why the world's a mess? Because the human heart is a mess. But here's the most encouraging news. Think about it. First of all, you're made in the image of God. You've been marred by sin, but this is also true. You can be restored to God's original design for dignity. God can restore us to his original design for dignity. Now here is an amazing thought, and this is from a human perspective. God's solution for the corruption, the pain, the suffering on this planet was this, the unplanned pregnancy of an unwed mother. Think about Mary, the mother of Jesus Christ. She was engaged, but she wasn't married. And from her perspective and Joseph's perspective, this was an unplanned pregnancy. In fact, you might call it a crisis pregnancy because how does Joseph react? Is he gonna stick by Mary? Not at first. He's gonna leave. He wants out. And what about her mom and dad and friends and family? We don't even know exactly what they said about her condition, but we do know this, that God used that miraculous conception to make it possible for our relationship with him to be restored. When I was in high school, I drove a car that I really, really liked. It was a yellow 1957 Chevy Bel Air two-door. And uh, it was, well, I just thought it was a really cool car. In fact, Chris and I used to go on dates in this car. It had a lot of memories. And I found a picture of a, uh, a 57 Chevy that has lost its dignity. Check this out. Yeah, sitting in the junkyard, a once beautiful car, just in need of some tender love and care. Now, I want to show you another picture. This is a 57 Chevy restored, completely restored. Friends, do you realize that when God begins a work in your life, when you come to faith in Christ, he undertakes this amazing restoration project? And that's what the scripture says. Take a look at this verse. It says, What this means is that those who become Christians become new persons. They are not the same anymore, for the old life is gone. A new life has begun. And of course, the question is, wow, that sounds great. I'd really like to have this new life. How do I get it? And the Bible says, well, you need to understand that you're a sinner and you need a Savior. Because church, it really begins there. When we have a perspective on ourselves that's consistent with God's perspective. I remember a Christian writer saying one time, it may be a very, very bad thing that Jesus needed to die for me, but it's a very good thing that he thinks I'm worth dying for. Do you realize that this morning, that that Jesus thinks you're worth dying for? And you see, if you want to have this new life that Jesus offers, you have to come to him and say, you know, Lord, I mean, I understand that I'm a sinner, that I violated God's laws, and and that God is holy and just, and he can't just look the other way. The Bible says that what I deserve is to die and to be separated from God forever. 
But Jesus, it also says here that you really love me and that you left your home in heaven and you lived the life that I couldn't live. You were perfect and then you, you were willing because of your great love to lay down your life on a cross. And, and it says here in, in God's book that on the cross that God was willing to put my sin on you, Jesus, that you were punished in my place. And you died for me. And then God raised you to life. And it says here in God's book that if I will admit that I'm a sinner and believe that you died and rose from the dead for my sins, and if I'll follow you, then I can have a new life where I am restored. And friends, one thing that's so important to understand is when you become a follower of Jesus Christ, God completely settles your past. He wants you to experience the joy and the freedom of complete forgiveness. And when we talk about this issue of abortion, that is so very important. I read a survey this week, and it said this, that one out of three women in America has had an abortion. One out of three. And this issue has touched so many lives, not just the lives of women, but the lives of men and entire families as well. And this survey also said this, that 10 years after an abortion, 96% of the women regarded their abortion as the taking of a human life. And I will tell you this, all the politics in the world cannot solve the pain that goes along with that. But God can. And God will. And there's a beautiful passage of scripture, I encourage you to read it sometime this week, it's Psalm 51. And in that Psalm, we find a pathway to forgiveness and freedom that God can provide. And the backstory for the psalm, it was written by King David and he had had an affair with the wife of one of his military officers and she got pregnant and the baby was born and then it died. And I cannot even imagine the guilt that he felt, but in this psalm we see what he did to move from that guilt to the freedom of God's forgiveness. And let me just quickly walk you through this because the first thing we need to do to experience God's forgiveness is simply this, to ask for God's mercy. And that's how this this psalm begins, verse one says this, have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love, because of your compassion, blot out the stain of my sin. And then secondly, we need to do this, we need to agree with God that what we've done is wrong. King David goes on and he says this, for I know, I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And listen, that word transgression in the original language means to step over the line. And here's the reality. We've all stepped over the line in one way or another. We all need God's forgiveness. And so we should ask for God's forgiveness, but we also should ask God for this. We can ask God for a new start. And King David does exactly that. He goes on to say this in verse 7. Purify me from my sins and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy again. You have broken me. Now let me rejoice. It is possible to feel cleared of your sin, but not cleansed of your sin. And the reality is this. When we break God's law, we will experience certain consequences. But God doesn't want us to, to live with regret and with shame and with the fear that somebody's going to find out. He wants us to live with the freedom and the joy of forgiveness. And here's the last thing that we see in the psalm. We have the opportunity to tell others about God's forgiveness. Look at verse 13. 
says this, then I will teach your ways to sinners and they will return to you. God wants us to share what we've learned about his grace and forgiveness with other people who need his grace and his forgiveness. And let me say this, um, First Care Family Resources, and they've been our ministry partner since our church began, they are on the front line in terms of this issue of the sanctity of human life, and we are so thankful for our partnership. There's a Um, a flyer inside your program. It gives you a little bit of information. And there's some contact information. There's their website and a phone number as well. I was thinking about how to close this message. And I know that when we deal with an issue like this, it seems almost overwhelming. In fact, some of us just get numbed to the the numbers and the statistics. But I believe the, the most important question to ask is this, God, what do you want me to do? What do you want us to do about this issue of the sanctity of human life? And I could give you one word, act. I mean, it's it's great to talk about it, but what are we going to do? And if you think about that three-letter word, A-C-T, here's a way to think about what God is calling us to do. The first word is ask. We need to ask. We need to pray. Because prayer really does move the mighty hand of God. And we need to pray for the leaders, the decision makers in our nation, that their hearts would be changed that the law would be changed. We need to pray for, for women and men who are dealing with a crisis pregnancy that they would choose life for their baby. And we need to pray for those women and men and families who have been, who've been touched by abortion, who need to experience God's hope and God's healing. We need to pray for them as well. The letter C stands for this, consider And we can consider some very practical things. One thing we consider is fostering children. You know, one of our ministry partners is Four Kids South Florida. And it's true, if the Christian families in South Florida would really just get on their knees and say, God, what do you want me to do? I I really believe that God would call a certain number of families to open their hearts and open their homes to foster kids. Not everybody's called to do that. And I get that. But have we even asked God if he's calling us to be a part of the solution by fostering children. We've got a family right here in our church who's been doing that for some time, and they are such an encouragement to me and to all of us here. Another thing we can do is to consider adoption, or you can consider this, volunteering at First Care and supporting their ministry that way. And the last letter is T. Stands for trust, trust Jesus Christ, because that's where the hope, that's where the healing begins. And church, in order to to stand up and speak up, We need courage that comes from trusting Christ. Martin Luther King said this one time. He said, our lives begin to end the day we become silent about the things that matter. Think about that. Our lives begin to end the day we become silent about the things that matter. Let me close with this story. It's from another pastor. He writes this. We were doing a baptism service at our church and told people before they came up to the platform to be baptized to take a piece of paper, write down a few of their sins, and fold up the paper. When they came up to the platform, there was a large wooden cross on the stage. They were asked to take that piece of paper, pin it to the cross, because the Bible says our sins are nailed to the cross and that God has forgiven us of every one. Then they were directed to a pastor to be baptized. This is what one woman who was part of that service wrote. I remember my fear. In fact, it was the most fear I remember in my whole life. I wrote as tiny as I could on that piece of paper the word 
abortion. I was so scared someone would open the paper and read it and find out it was me. I wanted to get up and walk out of the auditorium during the service. The guilt and the fear were so strong. When my turn came, I walked toward the cross and I pinned the paper there. I was directed to a pastor to be baptized and he looked me straight in the eye. I I thought for sure that he was going to read this terrible secret that I kept from everybody for so long. But instead, I felt like God was telling me, I love you. It's okay. You've been forgiven. I felt so much love for me. It was the first time in my life that I ever really felt forgiveness and God's unconditional love. Let's pray. Father, I'm so thankful for the experience that this woman had because, Lord, we know that in a moment, everything can change. That moment that we come to you and and ask for your forgiveness, that moment when we realize that, that we need you, that we need your grace, that moment we realize that that Jesus loves us so much that he was willing to lay down his life for us. And God, I know this morning that there are people in this room that have been personally affected by this issue of abortion. I know, God, there are people in this room that have experienced hope and have experienced healing. And I know this as well, Father, there are those who still need to know that hope and that healing. And I pray that today would be the day that they would come to you and find that the Savior's arms are open wide, because Jesus, I know they are. And Lord, for all of us who have received this grace and this mercy, we are so very thankful. God, the fact that we're here, the fact that I can even talk right now is because you've given me life. And God, I pray this, help us not to waste our life, help us to invest our life by accomplishing your purpose and your plan. Not just as individuals, not just as couples or families, but as a church. God, please help us to live in such a way that this world would know about your grace and your mercy and your truth. God, today we pray that you would change the hearts and the minds of leaders in this country. We pray that men and women in a crisis pregnancy would choose life. We pray, God, that your will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And with one voice, we thank you because, God, your mercy has found us. And for that, we are so thankful. And God, as we sing this last song, I pray that it would be a reminder of the mercy in our lives from you that's changed everything. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing our last song together.